Hello, and welcome to The Worst Bestsellers, where we read about a perfectly normal, unhaunted small town so you don't have to. I'm Renata. And I'm Kate. And for this episode, we read True Believer by Nicholas Sparks. Joining us to discuss this romance novel disguised as a ghost story is the ghost that lives in Kate's apartment. Hello, ghost. Um, we did have a living human guest lined up for this, but unfortunately something came up and they had to cancel, so luckily this ghost was happy to step in, and it turns out they actually have a lot of opinions about the way Nicholas Sparks portrays ghosts, so I'm glad we have them here for this. Who doesn't? Because Nicholas Sparks does not portray ghosts very well. No, he does not. Um, I guess before maybe we go into the book itself, we can talk a little bit just about the Nicholas Sparks phenomenon. And my favorite thing about Nicholas Sparks is that he has claimed many times that he does not write romance novels, that he has invented his own genre, which is love tragedy, which is not a thing. Romance novel, though. Yeah, this wasn't even a tragedy. This was just straight up love. I was really just waiting for like one or all of the people involved to die, and it didn't happen. And they would become the ghosts. Yeah. And it would become, they would go full circle, but alas, that did not actually occur. Everyone lived in this novel. Yeah. Even the really old person. So this is the first Nicholas Sparks novel I've read. I have seen a couple of his movies. Um, I saw A Walk to Remember when, you know, when everyone saw it in high school or whatever. And then recently I watched Safe Haven because uh, How Did This Get Made did an episode about it. So I watched it to keep up with that podcast. This is the second issue episode of our podcast in a row where I've hyped their podcast. But... I just, I just like it, guys, and they are on the same wavelength as me here on Nicholas Sparks, and so I, I did actually really enjoy the Safe Haven movie, but it is bananas, and I would recommend it, and also the How Did This Get Made episode about it. I've never read a Nicholas Sparks novel before this, and I did. I didn't think I had ever seen a movie, but then I was on his Wikipedia page, And I saw that a movie that I saw that I had claimed was one of the worst movies I ever saw, Message in a Bottle, (laughs) was apparently based on a Nicholas Sparks book. And I just remember (laughs) it because my friend and I went to go see it and we were really excited because it it came out like, I guess, in like the mid to late 90s, which was right around the time we were allowed to go to the movies by ourselves Mm -hmm. for like the first time. So we went to, like, literally the only movie that was showing at the time we got to the theater, and it was that, and it was terrible, and I think we left before it ended. Wow. But I don't actually remember anything about it, so. Yeah, I mean, it was probably, like, uh, probably set in a small beach town in North Carolina. Um, Probably there was love and maybe tragedy, if I had to guess. You know, 12-year-old, 11, 12, 13-year-old Kate was not so much into the romance, so I can I can see her getting bored with it very easily. Right. Um, yeah, I haven't seen that one, but I, I bet it's garbage. Surprisingly, though, so, I you know, I just hear everyone talks about Nicholas Sparks, like, you know, his crazy popularity is a documented phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I'd never read anything by him before, and um, well, I guess two things. One, this book was not as bad as I thought it was going to be. No. 
which I feel like is a thing that we say all the time now that we've read the Christmas sweater. <laughs> I know. I genuinely think that my internal bar for things has just shifted wildly, and now it's it's not a normal human scale anymore for measuring quality. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it was, I mean, it was, it was a perfectly fine, like, the prose wasn't particularly badly written. The story was pretty cliche and predictable, but not any more so than any other book. You know, aside from, like, the shitty ending, which we'll get to, because we both hated it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was perfectly fine. It was a quick read. The other thing is that, that I didn't know about Nicholas Sparks in having to Google him after reading this is that apparently he founded some parochial school and is like hella racist and homophobic yes and i didn't know that and now i'm like well predictable but i heard about it on throwing shade podcast which i don't know why i keep mentioning other podcasts but you know what guys (laughs) like just stop listening to our podcast listen to this other stuff (laughs) just leave us here with our ghost um, no, they their episode about Nicholas Sparks is really funny though. You should seek that out too. When they when they found out that he um, because he'd fired the headmaster of the school, and um, I don't remember if he actually if the headmaster actually sued or just sort of wanted to let people know that Nicholas Sparks was a d bag, but uh, that happened. And I also saw that he divorced his wife recently. Ooh. Which I just feel like when you write, like, all of these horrible books where, you know, someone dies tragically after they fall in love and get married, like, that's just a notable thing. He's living (laughs) his own love tragedy. Apparently. (laughs) Okay, yes, the headmaster's name was uh, Saul Benjamin, and he did sue the school, well, Nicholas Sparks... Or the school. I should have read this before we started recording, but whatever. Do what I want. Um, we'll link to that. You can figure out how this turned out. I don't know if the lawsuit has actually been resolved yet, but the point is, Nicholas Sparks, probably a douchebag. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, this book, I mean, the the prose, like, technically speaking, as a work of literature, it's, it's fine. Yeah, it's not... This wasn't a novel where I was like, oh, why wasn't there an editor? Like, I feel like, yeah, it was edited. It felt like sort of a professional grade piece of book. I didn't love it or anything. It was just sort of like, this is fine. This is fine. And then the ending, I read this book while I was camping. And I literally, when I finished it, I literally threw it on the ground in rage, which I don't think I've done before with any of these books, which is... I feel like I probably did with Christmas sweater, but I don't really remember it. But I, I literally <laughs> threw this on the ground, and then I thought of the Mitch Hedberg joke about how like you shouldn't get in a fight in a tent because you can't really slam the tent flap, and that's like how I felt. Like I wished I had something louder to drop it on <laughs> than my sleeping bag. <laughs> Maybe I'll do that later. Well, why don't we get into the plot of the book? So then we can go on a 20-minute tear about how terrible the ending is. Yeah, I in my mental schedule for this, it's like 30 seconds to talk about the plot and then like 30 minutes for the fucking epilogue. Oh my god. Um, so the book is about this guy named Jeremy who lives in New York City and is a freelance writer and reporter for Scientific American. And when the book opens, he is in the midst of debunking a well-known 
psychic as a fraud on national television. So he's like really excited about that because he hopes that that means that his career is going to get a big bump and freelancing just about pays the bills, but it's not as lucrative as he would like. And if he get a TV gig, then more money will come in and he'll have to do less, I think, in theory, traveling around the country to research stories to write. In the wake of this success, he has another article lined up to write for his column in Scientific American about these mysterious lights in a cemetery in North Carolina. And he does a lot of these kind of spirituality debunking fluff pieces, he calls them. So he had gotten this letter from this woman named Doris who was inviting him to come down and investigate what causes these mysterious lights. And the town is really capitalizing on it. Uh, they have like a whole historic tour centered around it. They have selling merchandise, talking about the haunted cemetery. And um, he's excited about the idea of going down and kind of taking it easy after going all crazy doing the psychic debunking and all of the work that that involved. And just doing like a nice weekend getaway, five day trip to this nice small town and wrapping up this story about whatever it is that's actually causing the lights. Cause it can't be ghosts cause ghosts aren't real. And so he sets off to do that. Okay. You made the ghost math. <laughs> I, I, I don't believe that ghost. That's what Jeremy believes. He's a douchebag. He's from the city. By the way, every time they said New York city in this book, I imagined it as being like in that salsa commercial where the cowboy's like, New York city. Like, I feel like that's how every character except for Jeremy talks in this book. Yeah. So he, he go and also, by the way, the small town is called Boone Creek, which I kept getting, I kept misremembering it as Boone's Farm, which I don't know if that's a regional brand or what, but where I come from, it's a brand of, like, very cheap wine coolers. <laughs> and that's basically how this book is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's an apt comparison. I feel like Nicholas Sparks is the cheap wine coolers of literature. Yeah, like, could be worse. Anyway, so, so Doris, by the way, I have developed a, a theory with Kate uh, that... <laughs> is insane. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I will share it with you now. And so the hub of Boone's Farm is this restaurant that's it's just called Herbs. <laughs> Herbs is the name of the restaurant. And it's run by a woman named Doris, the same one who invited Jeremy to the town. And she doesn't believe in these ghosts, but she tells him that she has other powers. She tells him that she's a diviner, so she can track water. And she tells him that she can guess the sex of an unborn baby with 100% accuracy. So she's like, you know, I, I, I believe in, like, some supernatural stuff, but not these ghosts. These ghosts are fake. And my theory... Uh, is that she is Jello from Outlander, who has time traveled again and gone to America and sort of gone into semi retirement and just opened this herbs restaurant with her witchcraft and her herbs. I mean, it's solid that that I took that headcanon into the book as I read it, <laughs> yeah. and it made her character much more palatable. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, 
So Jeremy uh, gets to Boone's farm and he keeps having all these interactions that are just like very comically small town. Like he goes to the gas station like, oh, yeah, we heard you were coming from the city. And the guy talks to him forever about just like small town gossip. And then he gets to the restaurant and the same thing happens. It happens like all over town. You know, you can imagine just all these typical small town conversations happening. And then uh, he's there, he's doing his research, and so he goes to the town library and meets Lexi, the sexy librarian, who, which I, I kind of like that there was a librarian in here, but I don't know. I, I wished that I liked her more. I wish that she did more librarianing. She didn't, like, she was either in the office doing paperwork or wandering around the town with him not actually doing any work. She did a story oh, time. And I guess at there least was that once. one scene where she did story time. Yeah. yeah. So she's like, I mean, I get that it's a small town library, but she's the archivist and the and the children's librarian and everything. But there are other people who work at the library, so I don't really know what those people are doing. Anyway, so um, you know, sparks fly between Jeremy and Lexi, and they have a thing that happens kind of a lot, I feel like, in romantic comedies or whatever, where we're supposed to believe that, like, oh, Jeremy is, like, kind of a douche, but, you know, she sees beneath that, and she sees it as, like, a heart of gold or, like, whatever, and they have this sort of, like, aggressive flirting where he is just like, oh, yeah, like, everything's better in New York, and she's like, you're a dick, and I'm like, this it doesn't read as flirting to me, it reads as, like, Jeremy's a dick, please go away, Jeremy. But apparently it's charming. Yeah, and they they try to, like, parlay it into the other big thing that I notice in a lot of rom-coms and romance novels, which is he, like, comes off as, like, really aggressive and a dick, and she makes these assumptions about him. But he doesn't, like, refute them because of pride or whatever. But then she finds out she's wrong, and she feels bad, and realizes that, you know, no, like, she had thought that he was a spoiled asshole, but really... Like, he just has, like, you know, bad things in his past that he doesn't like to talk about. And that's what makes him like this. And, you know, she shouldn't have been so quick to judge. And that was annoying. Yeah. Like, she assumes he's an only child because he's, like, so spoiled or whatever. But actually, he's one of, like, five children. Joke's on you, Lexi. Yeah, and, like, she thinks that... Because he lives in New York, like, oh, he doesn't know from family and from neighborhoods. And he's like, well, actually, like, I grew up in Queens and my family was very poor. And I grew up in a neighborhood and there are neighborhoods in the city, too. And, like, kids grow up good in the city, too. It's not just small towns where people care about each other. You're misjudging at me. Yeah. And it's just like, Um, And then, of course, the thing that she is misjudging him on the most is... Uh, that he, well, okay, so whatever. He's single, and is he, is he, di- he's divorced, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, so he was married, and his wife left him because he's infertile, and, like, they both really wanted kids, and, you know, the wife really didn't want to adopt or, like, consider a sperm donor or anything like that. She really wanted, like, to make a baby with her husband without any, like, medical help or whatever, so she left him and found some fertile dude to marry, so now Jeremy is scarred forever. And they have what I thought was, like, a really nice conversation that, you know, we talked about this a little bit in uh, with Greek Tycoon's uh, Black Male Mistress, where I, I really don't like it 
in romance novels where it's like, oh, yeah, a baby will solve all our problems. And if you can't have a baby, then, like, we'll never, ever talk about adoption or any of the other options. Because Lexi hears that and she's like, oh, yeah, your wife sounds like an asshole. Like, there's, you know, what about adoption? There's nothing wrong with that. What about this? Like, you know, I think as long as you love a baby, it doesn't matter where it comes from. And I'm like, yeah, right on, Lexi. Like, I like that. Yeah, like, I really, because I feel the same way. Like, it makes me really mad when people act like the only way that, you know, your romantic couple can have a family is if, you know, they have penis in vagina sex and then produce a baby that way that they raise them their own, you know, with half of each of their genetic material. And that's the only way you can make a family. Right. So I really appreciate it that Lexi had that conversation with him was like, no, like, you know, all that matters is upbringing. And it's particularly poignant because her own parents, we find out, died when she was a toddler and she was raised by her grandparents, who she remarked several times throughout the text. She didn't think of them as any different than the other parents. Like, they were her parents as far as she was concerned. Right. Also, I forget if we said that her her grandmother is Doris, a.k.a. Jello the Witch, who runs herbs, the restaurant. So they start, Jeremy and and, uh, Lexi, like, they have this flirtation and they're attracted to each other and there's, like, random obstacles. Um, Lexi was burned by another guy who had come to Boone's Creek for just a short period of time and she had fallen for him and then he left to go back to the city and left her there. And she's, like, very hesitant to get into a relationship with Jeremy because she knows that he's leaving. So an- another struggle that they had is that the deputy sheriff of the town is like kind of obsessed with Lexi and like they are sort of dating like she'll ask they'll go together to like social functions of the town but she makes it pretty clear like they've never kissed they've never slept together like that she pretty much gets lonely and when she feels like she's socially obligated to go to things, she goes with him so she's not alone because she knows he has a crush on her. Right. And so um, so because he's the deputy and because he likes Lexi, he's kind of like harassing Jeremy in a way that's like not totally on the up and up, if you ask me, especially like later on. Um, Jeremy's friend, the cameraman, comes to visit... Okay, and he arrests the cameraman, and everyone's like, what the fuck, like, you didn't actually, like, he didn't do anything, you can't just arrest people. And he's like, okay, okay, no problem, bye. And it's really weird. Yeah, he, um, he's just, like, really proprietary to the point where it's very unattractive. Mm -hmm. And weird, too, because she doesn't have any interest in him, so it's not like she's like, oh, like, I want to be with Jeremy, but I'm devoted to Rodney, She's just like, Rodney, don't be a dick. Like, let me be friends with this man. And he's like, oh, okay. And then continues to be a dick. Um, And the the other, like, weird thing that keeps popping up is that the mayor of the town is, like, super into Jeremy being there as a celebrity and, like, comps him the room that he's staying in and tells him that, like, you know, everything's on him and then invites him to like a dinner among friends which turns out to be this giant party in jeremy's honor welcoming welcoming him to the town that everyone in the town comes to right and we learn that the mayor like the town is struggling and it needs more money and so he's just really hoping for more tourist money and he thinks that if jeremy writes an article then it's gonna um 
bring more tourists to the town. And yeah, so and he, he really does not want Jeremy to find... He wants Jeremy to say that the ghosts are real. Yes. And he... Or at least, like, if he debunks them, debunks the ghosts as not being real, to do it in such a way that it preserves some sort of mystery. Mm-hmm. He's really invested in the town getting any exposure it can on television, because that's his big thing. Jeremy, his job on paper is writing this column for Scientific American. But, you know, because he's had this big TV break, the mayor is convinced that he's going to get the town on television. And Jeremy keeps being like, um, actually, I'm here to write a column for a magazine. And he's like, oh, yeah, wink, wink. I know. You know, just a magazine. Yeah, these small town people don't know how journalism works. It's very exasperating. So he goes out to investigate the lights in the ceremony, a ceremony, <laughs> the ceremony. They have a ceremony in the cemetery <laughs> <laughs> to find he, out if the ghosts are real. Yes, he, he goes out uh, to investigate the lights in the cemetery with Lexi. And she tells him a very touching story about how after her parents died, her grandmother took her to the cemetery to watch the lights and heavily implied to her that the lights were the ghosts of her dead parents. And it very it comforted her. She had been having nightmares about her parents and it kind of put her at peace. And they have like a romantic moment after watching the lights. But when they get back to her house, she's like, well, see you tomorrow and won't let him come inside. Yeah. So he goes back to the library to research the next day and she's very like businesslike with him and does not acknowledge their romance at all and then disappears while he's doing research and i think it's at this point he figures out no before he comes to the library the next day he calls his editor and tells him like oh i know what the lights are i know what's causing them it's not ghosts but does not explain what they are nor does he do it for the next 200 pages of the book and i mean i think it's because, I mean, you know, he's trying to build suspense or whatever, but the answer is incredibly boring. And I feel like Nicholas Sparks knew it was boring. Jeremy knows. Everybody knows it's boring. But And so Jeremy knows this article is not going to be very exciting because it's a really boring answer. And I feel like Nicholas Sparks knew that, too. But the difference is Nicholas Sparks made this up, so he could have made it more interesting. I don't yeah. know. Or he could have, I mean, the way that it's, it's just very clunky. Like, it's very obvious that they're not revealing the answer in the text. There's many places where naturally, in the conversation or the narrative, he could have put the answer and then dedicated the rest of the book to focusing on the romance. But instead, there's just like all these awkward, like, you know, and that was before he figured out what the lights meant. You know, now that he knows, everything's different. And it's like, but what, what are they? And and it's never, and then once they, they find out, it's very like, oh, that's it. Like, it, it doesn't tie in to anything. It's just... You know, we're not Nicholas Sparks, so I guess we can just tell you that what yeah. causes the lights that look like ghosts are when the lights are left on at the old paper factory, and then the train goes by, and it's foggy, and that combination of factors looks like ghosts. Yeah, it... Bref- Flecks the light into the cemetery, and the the whole story of the cemetery is that there was a predominantly black town across the river, and a highway was set to be 
going through their town, right through their cemetery, and all of the people who were buried in the cemetery would have had to be dug up and reinterred at another location. And the mayor of that town, or maybe just a woman who lived there who was a big person, social person in that town, was very upset about this. And when nobody would listen to her complaints, she cursed the white people's cemetery across <laughs> the lake and said, you know, your cemetery is going to, you know, your the souls of your people will be restless because the souls of my people will walk through the cemetery on their way to their new resting place and your cemetery will begin to disappear and fall apart. And it's slowly sinking. The cemetery in the years since her curse is slowly sinking into the ground because it's built over a reservoir. Right. Um, so it's, a oh, good, yeah, that, like, I forgot that is also part of why the light shine. Cause now it's lower yeah. in the ground than it used to be. Yeah. So there's a bigger fog concentration cause it's sunk like three feet into the ground. So it's like the light reflecting off the fog into like a denser fog area makes it look like ghosts or something. Anyway, it's stupid. It's <laughs> Really stupid. Not as cool as real ghosts are. Ghost who lives in my apartment. <laughs> um, yeah, so he, he, Jeremy figures out what the ghosts are. He goes to see Lexi. She gives him the cold so- shoulder. Then she disappears. And he discovers that he deduces that she's run away to the cottage that her parents used to own on an island off the coast of North Carolina. Yeah, uh, off of Cape Hatteras, which is like yes. far away from from Boone's Farm, North Carolina. Yes. He would need to drive five or six hours to get there or take a ferry. And the ferry only goes once a day and it's already gone. And he really wants to follow her to give a grand romantic gesture, but... He's, like, panicked because he doesn't know how he can get there. And also his his cameraman friend and, and editor, at least one person is supposed to be coming to meet him and they have plans to meet. And so he just blows them all off and, like, pays a boat guy to take him to this place. That he's not even sure that that's where she is. You know, he doesn't call her or anything. Or he can't get through. Like, he does not directly communicate with her. He just, like... You know, do, yeah, does a big romantic gesture thing and pays this boat guy and blows off his actual responsibilities to go stalk her at this lighthouse, which but she likes. So, yeah, she's like super into it. So romantic, which is like, it makes me laugh because like, I'm sure this happens in every Nicholas Sparks book because it happens in every romance novel, every rom-com is she goes away to be alone with her feelings when she secretly wants him to be there and then he shows up and she's like oh my god I secretly wanted you to be here but you know of course when it happened in Fifty Shades of Grey he's a horrible stalker who's the worst <laughs> sorry we're still fucking talking we're never gonna stop talking <laughs> about Fifty Shades of Grey by the way people have asked if we're gonna read Grey and the answer is hell yes we're gonna read Grey just hold yeah. tight we'll get to it soon <laughs> anyway um, so he shows up at the island and it's very romantic and they like make dinner together and they talk about their feelings, and then they have sex, like, a million times. Mm-hmm. Um, and then go back and eat dinner later. Unprotected sex, because he didn't think to bring a condom when he was taking his romantic boat trip. Yeah. Which doesn't matter, because he's infertile, right? Because, 
Also, they don't have STDs, obviously. Yes. Also, like, there were three major things that just niggled at me about this book. And this one is little, but it did niggle at me, which is that they keep describing Lexi as, like, she just wears, like, jeans and t-shirts. Like, she's very down to earth, very, like, natural, whatever. So, but apparently in running away to the island, she didn't pack any clothes but her favorite worn out jeans and shirts. But she did pack a whole array of makeup, which she puts on for their romantic night together. Well, and you, know, person, you know how girls are, Kate. When they say they don't wear a lot of makeup, <laughs> what they mean is they only wear, like, two shades of eyeshadow. Come on. Uh, it really bothered me, obviously. <laughs> so, fully made up, she they have sex a whole bunch of times, unprotected. All over the house. I kept, by the way, I kept imagining if they were inside the lighthouse, but they weren't. <laughs> but it, it's yeah. funnier to me if they were. <laughs> they were very near the lighthouse. And the lighthouse yeah. is on the cover of the book, so. The lighthouse is the place where her parents got married, and it's very meaningful to her for some reason. I mean, you know, lighthouse, very symbolic. It's like how the ghosts were her parents, the yeah. lights. Lighthouse, fucking whatever. They've... Lighthouses, he's infertile, something phallic <laughs> object. Anyway. Hey, and the lighthouse, it's black and white striped, just like their racist cemeteries. <laughs> Which, yeah. by the way, that story you, you brought up earlier, I thought that was the most interesting thing in this whole book, and they talk about it for like two paragraphs, and they're like, no, it's not that, it's the paper mail by. Yeah. Um, it's and and also they they say he later says says like oh he had discovered three different versions of that local myth, but it, you know no evidence of which one was true. But then they never tell us the other two versions. Right. I I was interested in that. That's the book I want. Right. I want the book about first cemetery. Um, yeah, I guess you should just go like reread Beloved. Um, yeah. Not for this podcast, just on our own time. Uh, oh, the other thing that we, I guess, is a semi-important plot point is that... Uh, so he's been doing research in the library and reading, like, old diaries and stuff. And the diary that, like, really lays out the mystery is the mayor's either father or grandfather. I think father. Yeah. It's the his father's diary spells it out. And so he's like, oh, so the mayor obviously knew that the ghosts were fake. And so he feels like really betrayed and he thinks, and also this is when the Lexi has left him. So he's like really mad at the town. He's like mad at everything. And he's like, you're just scamming people like you knew. And well, then there's like, whoa, bro. Go ahead. You're skipping ahead a little bit. Cause first they come back from the Island and, and like, he thinks that everything's going to be great because they said like, I love you a million times and like talk through some of their issues, but she goes all weird on him again. And that's when he discovers the journal is after their romantic tryst, he discovers the mayor's father's journal that explains that the lights are because of the paper mill and the train and the fog and not ghosts. Wait, oh, I'm sorry. I thought he had that before. No. But he figured it out before. Yeah, he figured it out Oh, he before, figured it out on his own, and then he found the journal that, like, own. okay. Stupid, yeah. whatever. 
so once he finds the journal, he's really pissed because he thinks that she knew and she was keeping it from him and forcing him to solve this mystery to make a fool out of him for reasons that I'm not entirely sure why that would be making right. a fool out of him. Oh, and uh, well, and there's this whole thing she keeps doing that, again, I think it's just be flirting, but it just sucks, where she, and it's bad librarianship also, like, she keeps kind of, like, withholding information from him. She keeps answering questions very literally, basically, and then later he's like, how come you didn't tell me then? She's like, well, you didn't ask me that. Um, just stuff like he'd be like, oh, what time is library open or whatever. And then later he'd find out that she sometimes gives people permission to stay after hours. And he's like, well, why didn't you tell me that? And she's like, you didn't ask if you could stay later. Like just dumb bullshit like that. So I think she's, she's, she pulls one of those like, well, you didn't ask me if there was already a journal that like specifically spelled out the exact thing that you're looking for. Yeah. So he gets really pissed at her and they have like a huge fight and then he, goes to her grandmother and Doris, a.k.a. Jello. Yeah, and talks about it all, and she's just like, well, you know, I can't, I can't say, I can't do anything about it, like, she is what she is, and you either accept that or you don't, and he's, like, really grumbly about the whole thing, and he also figures out that the reason that she and Doris don't want the graveyard turned into a tourist attraction is because her parents were some of the last people to be buried there. Mm-hmm. So essentially people are trampling all over her parents' graves in order to witness this ghostly phenomenon and that's why they want it shut down. Right. Um, so he finishes his story like his cameraman buddy films a whole bunch of things and he goes back to New York And he's, like, not on good terms with Lexi because she's like, oh, like, I'm not going to move to New York. You're not going to move to a small town. So our relationship is going nowhere and it doesn't matter if we love each other. Blah, blah, blah. Um, So he's sad. And because he's sad, he doesn't give, like, a real good pitch for the article. So the TV producers who wanted to hear about it are not into it. And because he keeps thinking about all of the people whose lives he touched when he was in Boone's Creek, he does not tell them that the mayor knew and was purposely perpetrating a fraud in order to make money. Well, also the mayor, like, apologized and was like, oh, like, please, please. I don't know. And he felt okay about that. Yeah. Um, so he, he decides, because the cameraman says, like, this is a non-story. This is a dumb, boring science reason that is not at all interesting. Like, you need to give it some spice. You need to tell them about the mayor. And that's what's going to sell it to the television people. But he decides not to tell the television people about the mayor. And instead to keep his secret. And the television people pass on offering him a deal. So he's not television famous. And he's living his boring, mopey day-to-day life in New York. And then there's a knock on his door, and it's not his Chinese food, oh. but it's Doris Jello. Yeah, she got in her broom, went to New York. <laughs> <laughs> Flew all the way up to New York to tell him that Lexi still loves him and lied. Because when, when he left, Lexi was like, it'll never work out between us. Like, we love each other, but you're not going to move here and I'm not going to move to New York. So I'm just going to marry Rodney. And that's that. Right. So Doris tells Jeremy that she didn't marry Rodney. That was just bullshit that she made up to get him to not come back. And I guess 
They don't have Facebook yet or anything, any technology. There's, like, no technology in this book at all. Yeah, was this 97? This is, like, an older one. It's if not it one was... of his more popular oh. ones. Okay. Oh, uh, 2005, really? I would have believed 97, but I guess. Yeah, there's, like, no nothing in it. They have cell phones, but they never work because the reception is so bad out there that they're basically useless. Or because of the ghosts. Maybe. Um, so she's like oh and i like i couldn't tell you this over the phone because i just like had to look into your eyes and also i'm a witch whatever (laughs) (laughs) so oh so then he like decides to like run to the airport and he ends up on the same flight back as doris slash jello to go make another goddamn big sweeping gesture without calling ahead first (laughs) and then he goes back and he tells Lexi that he loves her and he's willing to move to Boone's Creek to be with her because the city life actually isn't that good at all even though he kept coming up with reasons why it was just as good he didn't actually believe any of them in his heart and he's happy to move here to be with her and her family and, yeah, and, and since he's a freelance writer, he can work from wherever. Which is the point I was surprised didn't get raised earlier, because that was kind of, like, the first thing I thought of when she was like, meh, like, your job. Like, your yeah. job is a freelance writer, bro. Yeah. Anyway. So then the epilogue happens. <sighs> it just flames on the side of my face. And they're talking about him getting a house and her going with him to like look at where good real estate would be and they're chatting and she asks if he believes in miracles and he's like no and she's like well and puts puts his hand on her stomach right yeah and it's like it's a girl yep so after all of that like really nice talk about how it's okay you're infertile like it's not like miracle fucking baby God damn it. Oh my god. And not only is it a miracle baby, which, like, as we laid out before, like, we're really angry about why. And not only does it invalidate the whole end of the book, which I'm going to loop back around to in a second, but it makes no sense time-wise. Also that, like, yeah, I was going to ask, like, when... How, like, how, mm, fucking whatever. Like, it seems like a matter of weeks altogether have passed between when they first met, when they had sex, and when she's like, we're having a baby and it's a girl... Like I, I mean, I don't she, she only knows it's a girl because of Doris's witch powers. Recall, yes, one of which Doris's, can tell before a sonogram. Yes, one of Doris's witch powers is the ability to tell the gender of babies. <laughs> uh, it's just maybe this book wasn't fine. Very, actually, <laughs> the more yeah, I talk about it, like the more the I'm whole, like, God damn it! <laughs> and it just like after all of this. Her accepting him in a way his ex-wife never did, like, even though he's infertile, and her, him coming to terms with that, and then her talking about how accepting she would be of adopting a baby, or getting a donor, and how it doesn't matter how a baby is made, just how it's raised, and that's, you know, the true test of parenthood, they come back to, like, oh, wait, we had a baby the old-fashioned way. And it just, like, the thing that it reminded me of is the movie What's Your Number?, which is a garbage movie. It is terrible. Like, even as rom-coms go, I just 
do not like it. And I know that we have listeners who do like it. And I understand I am not against rom-coms as a whole. I am against this one in particular. And the reason is that the end invalidates the whole movie. Well, I haven't seen it. What is it? It's Anna Faris realizes all of her friends are getting married and she realizes that they've all had sex with many fewer partners than her. And she's ashamed of how many people she's had sex with and refuses to have sex with anyone new. So she decides that she has to marry one of the men she's previously had sex with. So her number doesn't go up any higher. Oh. And over the course of the movie, she falls in love with her neighbor across the hall, Chris Evans. Well, of course. And, but resists being with him because of the whole raising her number higher thing and then at the very end after she's accepted that about herself and accepted him and they're in a relationship she gets a phone call from one of the men she thought she slept with who says oh no we didn't sleep together that night we were both really drunk and we just passed out and she's very excited because it means that she did not sleep with 20 people she slept with 19 people just like she had wanted to all along what yes (laughs) okay so yeah like that i and i feel that that like that's why i hate that movie so much is because the end invalidates her journey over the course of the movie yeah you know she spends all this time coming to terms with the fact that like slut shaming is a bad thing and it doesn't matter how many people you sleep with and blah 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 and then at the end it's like oh surprise like really you did sleep with your golden number of people after all not your golden number plus one and she's ecstatically happy and yes, I felt the same way about the ending of this yeah. book. This re- okay. So in in the How Did This Get Made episode about Safe Haven, um, they describe Nicholas Sparks as uh, Tyler Perry for beachy white people, and I, <laughs> and I feel like that is true. Um, in you know, and they're very like, you know, it's like morality tales. Like if you're good, yeah. you get rewarded, and if you're bad, you get AIDS. In Tyler Perry's case, I don't know about Nicholas Sparks. Um, so, you know, their true love, like, conquered infertility and, like, fuck you, Nicholas Sparks. And uh, there's a sequel to this, by the way, about, like, the birth of their daughter that I'm never going to read because I don't, I don't care. But uh, it exists. Their saga continues. No. Yes. And there were only, I'm looking at the, I am listing for it now, and it was only, there was only a six month, like, these books both came out in 2005. They came out six months apart. I wonder if he wrote them as one giant book. Mm, like an Outlander length story. Yeah. Uh, whatever. I bet, I bet that that's why no one dies at the end of this book. I bet they all die at the end of that one. Do you think the baby dies? Maybe. There is a chain of events that will forever change the course of this young couple's marriage, so that could do it. Yeah. Huh. Anyway, so the sequel is called At First Sight. If anybody hearing about this wants to read it, which I don't know why you would. <laughs> okay. So that's that's the book, right? Do we? Oh, we forgot yeah. a side plot about how Rodney, the deputy who was kind of stalking Lexi uh, started dating Rachel who's the side character who's the waitress at Herbs and they seem happy. Alright I guess it's time to move on to dramatic readings. Yay! So I am going to read uh, You're gonna read Jeremy's first trip to Herbs, Kate. I am. I am. One thing we didn't 
you know, we, we have, the, like, you'll hear, I guess, like, on a sentence-by-sentence basis, the writing in this isn't terrible, but this plot sucks. Um, and one thing that we didn't mention that really annoyed me is he recur- it recurs that he doesn't, like, write out the accent. You know, they're not, like, rogue in an X-Men comic or anything like that. But to uh, explain how how quaint their accent is... Um, Doris always says, well, I'll be as her catchphrase and you'll, you'll read about that. You'll hear about that from Kate, but it's infuriating. So this is Jeremy showing up at Herb's, the restaurant for the first time. After making himself comfortable near a window, he watched the waitress approach. Her name tag said Rachel. Jeremy thought about the name tag phenomenon in town. Did every worker have one? He wondered if it was some sort of rule, like nodding and waving. Can I get you something to drink, darling? Do you have cappuccino? He ventured. No, sorry. We do have coffee, though. Jeremy smiled. Coffee will be fine. You got it. Mengi's on the table if you want something to eat. Actually, I was wondering if Doris McClellan was around. Oh, she's in back, Rachel said, brightening. Want me to get her? If you wouldn't mind. She smiled. No problem at all, darling. He watched her head towards the kitchen and pushed through the swinging doors. A moment later, a woman whom he assumed was Doris emerged. She was the opposite of Rachel. Short and stout, with thinning white hair that was once blonde, she was wearing an apron but no name tag over a flower print blouse. She looked to be about 60. Pausing at the table, she put her hands on her hips before breaking into a smile. Well, she said, drawing out the word into two syllables, you must be Jeremy Marsh. Jeremy blinked. You know me? He asked. Of course. I just saw you on Primetime Live last Friday. I take it you got my letter. I did. Thank you. And you're here to write a story about the ghosts? He raised his hands. So it seems. Well, I'll be. Her accent made it sound as if she were pronouncing the letters L-I-B. Why didn't you tell me you were coming? I like to surprise people. Sometimes it makes it a little easier to obtain accurate information. L-I-B, she said again. After the surprise had faded, she pulled out the chair. Mind if I take a seat? I suppose you're here to talk to me. I don't want to get you in trouble with your boss if you're supposed to be working. She glanced over her shoulder and shouted, Hey, Rachel, you think the boss would mind if I took a seat? The man here wants to talk to me. Rachel poked her head out from behind the swinging doors. Jeremy could see her holding a pot of coffee. Nah, I don't think the boss would mind at all, Rachel responded. She loves to talk, especially when she's with such a handsome fella. Doris turned around. See, she said, no problem. Yeah, I just, I couldn't, the whole time I was reading, I could not wrap my head around L-I-B. Like, that's not, if like, if you have a real southern accent, I could see, like, well, I'll be, like, it just doesn't add up to L-I-B. That's not a thing. God, it's, Nicholas It's very, very strange. Like, look, Nicholas Sparks, if you want to write a real southern accent, just please go read some Chris Claremont comics. You'll figure Legit. it out. <laughs> or just don't do it. <laughs> Ugh, L-I-B. God. All right. So I'm, I'm going to read you a little bit later on when Lexi, the librarian, explains 
that the ghosts are her parents. I was eight years old. For whatever reason, I'd started having nightmares about my parents. Doris kept their wedding picture on the wall, and that was the way they always looked in the dream. Mom in her wedding dress and Dad in his tuxedo. Only this time, they were trapped in their car after it had fallen in the river. It was like I was looking at them from outside the car, and I could see the panic and fear on both their faces as water slowly filled the car. And my mom would get this real sad expression on her face, like she knew it was the end, and all of a sudden, the car would start sinking faster, and I'd be watching it descend from above. I'd wake up screaming. I don't know how many times it happened. It just sort of blurs together now in one big memory. But it must have gone on long enough for Doris to realize it wasn't just a phase. I suppose other parents might have taken me to a therapist. But Doris, well, she just woke me up late one night and told me to get dressed and put on a warm jacket. And the next thing I knew, she'd brought me here. She told me she was going to show me something wonderful. I remember it was a night like tonight, so Doris held my hand to keep me from stumbling. We wound our way among the tombstones and then sat for a while until the lights came. They looked almost alive. Everything got really bright until the lights just faded away. Even though I was young, I knew then what had happened. And when I got back home, I couldn't sleep because I'd just seen the ghosts of my parents. It was like they'd come to visit me. After that, I stopped having the nightmares. So, yeah. It, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of dumb, but it's fine. Until we get to this part. The last bit we're going to do a dramatic reading from is the end of the epilogue where we find out about the fucking miracle baby. I will be playing the role of Jeremy, and uh, Renata will be playing the role of Lexi. Yep. So tell me, Mr. Science Journalist, do you still doubt the existence of miracles? I just told you. You're my miracle. She rested her head on his shoulder for a moment before reaching for his hand. I'm talking about real miracles. When something happens that you never believed possible. No. He said, I think there's always an explanation if one digs deep enough. Even if a miracle were to happen to us? Her voice was soft, almost a whisper, and he looked at her. He could see the reflection of the town lights flickering in her eyes. What are you talking about? She took a deep breath. Doris shared some news with me earlier today. Jeremy watched her face, unable to grasp what she was saying, even as her express expression shifted from hesitant to animated to expectant. She gazed at him, waiting for him to say something, and still his mind refused to register her words. There was science, and then there was the unexplainable, and Jeremy had spent his life trying to reconcile the two. He dwelt in reality, scoffed at magic, and felt pity for true believers. But as he gazed at Lexi, trying to make sense of what she was telling him, he found his old sense of surety slipping. No, he couldn't explain it, and in the future he never would. It defied the laws of biology. It shattered the assumptions about the man he knew himself to be. Quite simply, it was impossible. But when she gently placed his hand on her stomach, he believed with sudden, euphoric certainty of the words he never thought he would hear. Here's our miracle. It's a girl. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I'm glad you're angry too, you ghost. Yeah, the ghost knows. That's not that's not a thing. Uh. <sighs> All right, let's cleanse our palates with a, a few good would you rathers. All right. Would you rather be comforted by the fake ghosts of your parents or debunk fake mediums? All right. Well, I know it's would you rather and you're supposed to choose one or the other, but I'm going to choose debunk fake mediums because then I can imagine myself living like an awesome ghost hunting marriage relationship where I go around ghost hunting, but also debunking the fakes at the same time. Wait, I don't understand how that's... Wait, what? Yeah, so no, it's like the Warrens, who are the ghost hunting couple that the the Conjuring was based on. They were ghost hunters, but they, in most of their investigations, they found a logical explanation for things. So they would debunk all of the fakes and all the people who were pretending for profit that, like, ghosts existed and they were haunted or they were a medium, while all the while also holding that there were actual haunted things out there and finding them and saving people from them. Okay, but what does that have... Okay, so you want to debunk fake medium, but but you're not choosing anything to do with the fake ghosts of your parents? Oh, yeah, I guess fake ghosts of your parents, no. So, yeah. Okay, that's, that's why I didn't understand how that was both of them. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, well, yeah, you want to debu- debunk the fake mediums, but keep the real ones. Yes. That makes sense. I, I mean, my parents are both um, still alive, fortunately, so I don't have fake ghosts of them. I imagine, though, after they die, it would be kind of nice to be able to imagine that the train lights are their ghosts. And I feel like debunking fake media, like, it just, I'm not really interested in that job. Um, it's like, uh... A while ago, I was telling friends about, I went to this mystery spot in South Dakota, and it was amazing and super mysterious. And they were like, well, so how did it work? Why didn't you Google it? And I was like, no, I do not want to know. I don't want to know if it's fake. I just really enjoyed the mystery spot, and like, fuck you for Googling this in front of me. So I don't want to do that to other people. I'll just, I'll was just that, take- Was that us? No, but then I- Was t- that me and Becca? <laughs> no, but I told you guys about it. I told you guys about it afterwards, because you were like, oh, yeah, we've also Googled that separately, but you it wasn't, like, in front of me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because I, cause I, I, I would still strongly, be holding that grudge if it was you. <laughs> <laughs> I very strongly remember you telling us about going to a mystery spot and then us Googling it on our phones. Yeah, but no, it was, well, because, um, you know, let's talk about this later, because I know exactly why you're confused, but let's not talk okay. about it on the podcast, because now right. it's a long story. <laughs> Uh, okay. So you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think this is why we normally have guests <laughs> to keep us on track. Also, uh, I might be a little drunk. <laughs> Maybe I had a little more sangria than I thought I had. Or whatever. I don't know. I'm a ghost. Oosh. <laughs> Kate, would you rather live a fast-paced childless life in NYC or live with your miracle baby in small-town North Carolina? 
Um, this one's really hard because I do want babies, but I don't, don't want a miracle baby because I don't want to have babies. I would like to acquire my babies through other means. Such also, I don't want to live in a small town in North Carolina. I know that, you know, not everywhere in the South is super homophobic, but also I just feel like as a lesbian living in a small town in North Carolina where you don't even have, like, good cell phone reception is not going to work out for me. You could live in a lighthouse. <laughs> I could. Uh, I think I'm going to go with the fast-paced childless life in NYC and then take childless to mean barren, as in I'm not having children myself, and then I'll get everything I want. <laughs> My wife won't be childless. I'll just be childless. There you go. Um... I, I would take the childless life in New York, no question. I don't want babies, and I don't want to live in North Carolina. Um, unless it's in a lighthouse, but even so. There are lighthouses by New York. That's true. All right, good. Well, we can be neighbors then and judge people who live in beach towns, just yes. like all New Yorkers do. Last up, would you rather find love via magical small town meet cute with a moral or via christianmingle.com? Um, christianmingle.com, obviously. I don't need a moral. I mean, I only need the morals from the Bible. Right. No question. Christianmingle.com. Yeah. Is our fine sponsor. Yes. We love you, christianmingle.com. Yeah. Um, we had somebody ask us on Twitter, like, did they stop sponsoring us? Is that why we haven't talked about them much lately? And no, they're, you know, just sometimes we don't always read romance novels. We don't want our sponsorship to feel shoehorned in. We only really want to talk about Christian Mingle when it applies, such as when yes. we're talking about love tragedies like Nicholas Sparks. So don't, don't worry, Christian Mingle fans. Good answer. Glad we're glad we're in agreement. Right. We'll live in New York uh, without babies of our own and log on to ChristianMingle.com together. Yes. <laughs> Living the dream. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to Reader's Advisory, where we'll recommend some books to read instead of or in addition to True Believer by Nicholas Sparks. I would say, I know this is one of his less popular ones. Like I said, I haven't read any of his other ones, but I would bet some of them are probably better than this. I hope so. Yeah. Um, I went with all other go real ghost books because that was what I felt was lacking the most in this story. Me too. Was not real ghosts. Yes. So I would recommend The Night Gardener uh, by Jonathan Oxier, maybe? That sounds good. It's good. There's an X and an I-E-R. You know, uh, it's a really good middle grade uh, horror story. The Nightmares by Dan Poblocki is a good one. Um, and that one also involves a lot of um, similar themes of research into um, what had happened to the town before that could be causing these occurrences. Lots of library work. And uh, doing the legwork to see what is behind the unexplained phenomenon. Uh, the Riverman by Aaron Starmer also has some kind of research work. I guess more writing work and archiving work than necessarily library research. But also, you know, in the same vein of trying to figure out what's going on. 
um, with the mysterious happenings. What's going on with mysterious <laughs> happenings? Cool. Uh, the Raven Boys too, which I know is a series that we both have recommended multiple times on this podcast. But it's so good. Supernatural happenings, research into things from long ago. You know, all of those themes. Less kissing. Right. For reasons of plot that are explained fairly early on in that series. The characters I want to kiss much more than I wanted Lexi and Jeremy to kiss. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I second a, a lot of the ones Kate suggested I've also read and enjoyed. Um, I'll add a couple more. Um, Anna Dressed in Blood by Kendare Blake is... Uh, YA horror romance um, with with ghost hunting and research into myths and and it's cool. I liked it. There's a sequel also that I haven't gotten around to reading yet, but it exists. Um, it was good. It wasn't as good as the first one, but I liked it. Okay. Um, I'm also gonna suggest uh, the Dead and Buried by Kim Harrington, which is a a book uh, another YA book that I read and I liked and. Uh, I book talked it to a lot of junior high kids and it involves a Ouija board and they all like flipped out every time I mentioned Ouija board being used. So I recommend that you read it if you enjoy reading about Ouija boards being used to communicate (laughs) with ghosts as I do. Uh, All right. And we'll, we'll have some others um, up on our reader's advisory page at worstbestsellers.com. Yep. Um, I also I'll have a couple of horror movies up there that I felt were similar in scope to this book because, like I said, I went with the ghost thing. And also, if you have Netflix, there's this show called Ghost Adventurers on it, which is the worst best show on the second worst best show on Netflix currently. What's um, the first best worst? Uh, Paranormal Home Inspectors. Oh, okay. <laughs> which is a real thing. <laughs> You Great. should absolutely watch it. They literally ghost hunt with like a regular home inspector and a medium. And the way it's set up so poorly because the home inspector goes in first. So you get this guy being like, oh, yeah, like, here's the reason why the door keeps blowing open at night. Like the hinges aren't set properly. And, you know, the the doors, when they're all closed at night in this hallway, create a wind tunnel for the window at the end of it. And, like, all of the actual reasons why things are happening. And then they have the medium come in and be like, oh, I can feel spirits. Spirits are why your doors keep opening. And it's just, like, <laughs> awesome. so amazing. So you should watch that one. But also Ghost Bro Adventures is the douchiest, broiest dudes going into haunted houses and it's just hysterical like they're so dumb and so douchey and broy. and yes watch that show that sounds great i don't know if my mic is picking it up or not but duarte is flipping out in the other room and i think it's because he's jealous of the attention the ghost is getting I mean, that's a fair point, Ghost. Uh, but let's move on to our candy pairing, <laughs> where we will suggest some candy to accompany this stupid book. Uh, I've chosen the Ghost-Shaped Halloween Peeps B 
because, you know, you look at it, it seems like it's going to be fun and ghosty, but then you eat it and you remember you don't even actually like peeps and you're really only supposed to eat those once a year and like, what the fuck, ghost peeps? I went with the folksy penny candy that they sell in the Target checkout line because it has all of the charm of country living pre-packaged at your local big box store for your convenience. That sounds like some real condescending big city talk, Kate. (laughs) But okay. (laughs) I feel like we didn't really get into, like, how... It was very, even though Jeremy kept like kind of being like, oh, no, living in New York isn't that bad. Um, it was very much like the book was framed like country living is the shit and anyone who lives anywhere else is stupid. And, you know, you'll learn that country living is where it's at for reals because people care about each other. But it was that. But also, I felt like Nicholas Sparks hated everyone else who lived in the town. Like, aside, yeah, like was- Lexi and Dora seem OK, but everyone else seems like they're real dumb but then like the characters are constantly telling you like oh like you know he seems like he's over the top but that's just what it's like around here like oh you know rodney seems like a crazed stalker who won't let other men near me but i feel safer knowing that he's protecting the town you just don't understand because you're not from here yeah barf anyway let's play a game (laughs) yay can we play the rock paper snicked that sounds awesome. All right. <laughs> well, that's a game, if you haven't heard, where I say who Wolverine would be if he were in this book, and Kate says who Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be if he were in this book, and then our guest decides uh, which which one would most enhance the book. Or paper, which would be to leave the book as is. So I hope the ghost is listening closely. All right. If Dwayne The Rock Johnson was in this book, he would be the mayor of Boone Creek. Unlike the mayor in the story, he would not be a creepy jerk about trying to capitalize on local legends and people desecrating the graveyards for cash. Instead of making up a fake ghost story, he'd advocate people visiting the cemetery at a short distance to watch the lights, which he explains is a beautiful scientific phenomenon that's still worth seeing, even if science can explain it. So Jeremy never investigates, the book never happens, and the four real ghosts are very pleased that he's not being a dick about their final resting place. Uh, meanwhile, if Wolverine were in this book, um, I would follow current Marvel canon, which states that Wolverine is dead, um, but he, he would be a ghost, and, um, you know, sometimes I think he would come down to Boone's farm and haunt that gra- graveyard. And knowing Wolverine, I'm going to say that at some point in his history, he loved a woman who tragically died and is buried there. So because Wolverine has so many dead tragic women in his backstory, he's got to rotate around and haunt them all equally. He's like a ghost timeshare. So sometimes he's in Boone's farm. And he happens to be there while Jeremy's investigating. And he starts haunting Lexi, because Wolverine, dead and alive, does just like to take young women under his ghostly wing, and he convinces her that she can do better than Jeremy, and that he is as much of a douchebag as his first impression suggested. Um, The town gets a mild boost to tourism when people start noticing a grumpy, drunk ghost in the graveyard, but it goes back to normal when Jeremy goes back to New York and Wolverine moves on to haunt his next dead girlfriend, maybe in Japan, I don't know. All right, Ghost, what do you have to say about those?
what's that? You think that it should be a draw? And that Wolverine and the Rock should just make out? Oh, I guess that's okay. I mean, normally we make a guest pick one or the other, but you make a compelling argument. Right, and I mean, if this is the ghost's, like, final wish, like, if the ghost can rest at peace and stop haunting your apartment after Wolverine and the Rock have made out, I don't think we should stand in the way of that. I don't either. That would just be wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. So, good game, good suggestion, Ghost. Uh, and uh, let's move on. Well, let's let's pause for a moment and continue imagining Wolverine and Dwayne the Rock Johnson making out. And now let's move on to the <laughs> to the moral of the story, which I will say is that ghosts are not real, but magical babies are. I would say that the moral of the story is that small town country living is perfect and ideal and cities are garbage. And why would you ever live there or raise a family there? I bet if you lived in a small town, you could have magical babies. If you lived in a small town, you'd be home with a magical baby by now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And now we'll turn it over and give my cat Duarte a chance to rebut all the things the ghost has been saying about him this whole time. Duarte. Well, I mean, I I think that's a fair point, Duarte. I think you should maybe just be a little bit more gracious. You know, you have your corner in every episode of the podcast. We have to share the airtime with other guests, including dead ones. Yeah, I noticed that you never really treat the human guests this way. I mean, I don't want to be a jerk, but are you kind of ghost racist, Duarte? I mean, I think you should just think about that. Think about why it's the ghost who you hate so much and not our other human guests. He he looks contrite. We'll, we'll see. I don't know. Change doesn't happen all at once, Kate. No. So, uh, closing thoughts from us humans. I'm glad I don't have to read any more Nicholas Sparks books. Maybe we should read another one. to play devil's advocate uh no we have other shit to do such as our next episode will be the forest of hands and teeth by carrie ryan which i am scared to read but i will do it anyway for this podcast and uh as always if you're looking for us on the internet you can find me on twitter at 14 across you can find me on twitter at renata snacks and you can find the podcast at Twitter at Worst Seller with no S. You can like us on Facebook. Uh, you can find us on Stitcher and iTunes and leave us a review or else we'll send the ghost that haunts my apartment to haunt your apartment instead. <laughs> um, one other thing I would like to mention quickly, if you visit our website, um, you know, we link to the books and to our reader's advisory suggested books. Um, Those links go to Amazon, and if you buy any of those, or if you buy anything else from Amazon, as long as you start from our website, we get a little kickback from Amazon. Um, It's it's not much. Like, from the time that we started the podcast until a few weeks ago, we finally earned $10, which is, like, the minimum increment (laughs) that Amazon will pay you when you reach that. So... Um, which, you know, we're, we're doing this for fun. We're not doing it to make money. But then I mentioned that in celebration on Twitter. And a few people like, oh, you should say that. You should remind us to do that in the podcast because I would do it. So thank you, people who said that. If, you know, if you're going to buy something from Amazon anyway, start at worstbestsellers.com. Do not buy True Believer. Buy, buy something else, probably. 
But if you start from worstbestsellers.com yeah. and continue on to Amazon through our link, uh, we would appreciate that and get some money that we can use to reimburse ourselves from having to purchase gray, which I'm going to have to do because there's too long of a line at the library. Yeah, me too. So, yeah, worstbestsellers.com and also christianmingle.com. Visit them. <laughs> uh, Ghost, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to be haunted by you. All right, I don't want to tell them that you have to come to the house in order to meet you, Ghost. I don't want strangers showing up at my house. Sorry. Get a Twitter account like a regular person. That's humanist. I don't think Ghost can type, Kate. Robert the doll has a Twitter account, and he's a haunted doll. So haunt something and get a Twitter account. There you go. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. I genuinely don't know why you are still listening to this anyone <laughs> at all. <laughs> but thank you. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. I think somewhere along the line I've started role-playing as a character who's like me but just weirder. <laughs> <laughs>